Hello, my name is Mick Sullivan, and welcome to The Past and the Curious. This is episode 62. Uh, I hope you had a chance to listen to the first installment of the Underwear Chronicles. Uh, That's a really fun one, and I'm excited about more of those, so stay tuned. And if you haven't listened to that yet, um, it should be in your feed. It was the, the episode before this. This episode features two names that you have probably heard plenty of, Edison and Lincoln, and there's a lot of Booth thrown in too. Um, But what's interesting about both of these stories is that they center around fateful events that happened in train stations, and they actually happened within two or three years of each other. Um, One one date we know, the other date we're not totally sure of, but um, it was, one was in 1862, one was in 1863, or 1864, we don't know. But I really think you're going to enjoy it. So let's do it. To say Election Day of 1860 was important is an understatement. November 6th was the day that Abraham Lincoln was elected president, a moment which set the stage for the American Civil War and the many important moments that came along with that conflict. Lincoln, of course, would go down in history as one of, if not the most important presidents in American history. But information was hard to come by that important election night. The 1860s were days long before we had the near-instant election results that we now have thanks to rapid communication through the internet, smartphones, and televisions. On this night, people were dying to know who would be sleeping in the Lincoln bedroom at the White House. Luckily, it was Lincoln, because it would have been awkward otherwise. Huh? What's that? Oh. Oh, the Lincoln bedroom was named after Abraham Lincoln, you say. That makes a lot of sense. Yes, I get it. Thank you. You're welcome. Anyway, in 1860, the most immediate news of the day only came buzzing to telegraph operators in the dits and daws of Morse code. Stretched over towns were newfangled telegraph wires carrying electrical pulses, which delivered official news, dispatches from government agencies, and newspaper reporters. Late in the night of November 6, some of those wires carried the best clues about the future of America. Which is why a young boy in Michigan climbed up one of those poles supporting the wires. And it's why he stuck out his tongue and pressed it to one of those very same wires. On that wire, he was currently tonguing, electricity was traveling in combinations of long and short pulses, which were intended to be deciphered in a telegraph office. But that doesn't mean they couldn't be intercepted for up-to-the-minute news. This boy figured a soft, wet tongue would be a perfect way to feel the electrical pulses, and since he knew the basics of Morse code, he could read the news through a series of small electrical shocks in his mouth. Was he right? He was... Well, yeah, he was he was right, but don't try it at home. That boy was a teenage Thomas Edison, and as soon as he was able to piece together the coded messages, he shouted down to a crowd gathered beneath him that Abraham Lincoln had won the election. When he was a boy, Thomas Edison was known as Al, short for his middle name, Alba. He was not one for traditional schooling. A string of teachers who couldn't understand the boy's learning style hurt his feelings and angered his parents. Soon, he was learning at home with the help of his mother. And quickly, he became an avid reader and would devour any science book that he could find. 
After finding a book with a basic Morse code alphabet, he and a friend strung a rudimentary telegraph line from their bedroom windows. Edison's father was not a fan of this, but when Thomas explained that his friend's family got the daily newspaper and he could have his friend send the articles in Morse code for Thomas to translate over the line and share with his old man, the elder Mr. Edison allowed it. Some of Thomas's other pursuits were more problematic for his parents. One failed experiment led to him burning down a building on a neighbor's property. It wasn't the last destructive accident of his life. But other experiments were less flamboyant. Once, he sat on chicken eggs to see if he could get them to hatch. Also, the curious boy attached wires to the tails of his cats and tried to capture the static electricity by petting them, which the cats loved. One of his friends would not be quite as purringly happy when he was made a test subject, however. Thomas mixed up a concoction that included a powerful laxative. His hypothesis was that if someone drank this potion, it could make them float. Sort of like Willy Wonka's fizzy lifting drink, I guess. This friend never stopped to ask why Thomas didn't drink it himself. And as you might guess, floating was not in the poor boy's future. But diarrhea definitely was. His parents had strong feelings about that poor friend's fate, but their feelings were a bit more mixed when it came to the laboratory that young Edison had set up in the basement. On one hand, he stayed occupied, dedicating hours to learning about things he cared deeply about. On the other hand, the materials he used for experiments often cost money, which was in short supply for the family. And there was always the looming possibility that he could just blow the place up. So they were relieved when the teenager got a job on the new railroad line that connected his small Michigan town with Detroit. Originally, he was hired to paint signs thanks to his nice handwriting, but soon he found something more to his liking. Early each morning, he'd board the train bound for Detroit to sell candy, fruit, snacks, and reading material to the people on the train cars. He loved riding the rails, and even better, while he waited for the evening train to return, he'd spend the hours reading at the Detroit Library. If he wasn't there, he was in the train's waiting baggage car, where he had also gotten permission to create a laboratory for his many experiments. Permission for the mobile science lab was rescinded, though, when he caught the car on fire. So instead of refilling the car with flammable materials and hazardous chemicals, the young Edison set up his own printing press. He learned how to use it and made his own weekly paper to sell. Also, he invested daily in copies of the Detroit newspaper to sell at all the train stations on the way back to his town. Eventually, he had a group of other boys working for him, which was a glimpse into his future. But it was an event in 1862 which sealed his fate. The train station in Mount Clemens was not a location where he typically sold a lot of papers. Despite this, he gave it a fair shot one particular day, standing on the platform, hawking the latest updates on the American Civil War battlefront. In addition to passenger trains like the ones he usually found himself on, there were lots of freight cars at this station, which had to be moved around to various offshoot spurs in order to make sure that they wound up being pulled by the correct engine. The station bustled with motion as cars were shunted to and fro. Calling out to no one in particular about the headlines in the day's paper, Edison's attention was grabbed by a young boy. The toddler was in a world of his own, joyfully playing on one of the rail lines, completely unaware of any dangers that may come. Teenage Edison's calls for paper sales 
fell silent when he noticed that a freight car was rolling quickly on that same line, heading directly towards the boy. And in a flash, he dropped the papers he was selling and dashed towards the oblivious child. Thomas Edison won the race against that massive vehicle. He scooped up the boy and got the two of them to safety, away from the rail, with little more than a few minor injuries. This moment was one of the most important in the 15-year-old boy's life. It would set him on a path to becoming a household name and a business owner who had few peers. As it so happened, the wandering child was the son of the station master, a man named James McKenzie. McKenzie, as you might imagine, was relieved and horrified and extraordinarily grateful to the 15-year-old who had just risked his life to save his son. In addition to being station master, McKenzie was the station's telegraph operator. And wanting to thank the boy for his heroic act, he made him an offer. Edison knew the basics of Morse code, but there was much more to sending and receiving messages. Among other things, Edison didn't know the agreed-upon shorthand system that allowed professionals to send messages even more quickly by abbreviating common words for greater speed. It seems slow by today's standards, but the telegraph changed the world, and these shorthand vocabularies made it even faster. Young Edison knew the world was changing thanks to technology, and he wanted to be a part of it. Plus, he knew this skill would be his best chance to get out of the newspaper business and start working towards a career. He roomed with the McKenzie family while he worked with the station master to learn, and he was soon the telegraph operator for the station. But telegraph operators were needed all over the country. And for the next few years, he traveled around America working for Western Union as an operator. He really liked the night shifts because there were fewer messages coming in, and this allowed him to focus on his experiments. While he was working in Louisville, he spilled some acid, which burned a hole through his desk, and then the floor, and then his boss's desk, and the room underneath. He got fired. But these were pretty common occurrences in his life, so he took it in stride. Within a few years, he had patented his first few inventions, a stock ticker and a vote counter. But in 1874, at the age of 27, he found financial success for the first time with an invention. Inspired, no doubt, by his chance encounter with the McKenzie family in the train station and the subsequent education he received as a telegraph operator, he created a new version which could carry four signals or four separate telegraph messages at the same time. This made things even faster, much more efficient, and when he sold it to Western Union, the same company who fired him for burning holes in things, it made him much, much richer. This money would allow him to devote himself to inventing, or to be more accurate, to hire a bunch of people to help him invent things. His plant in Menlo Park was a think tank of sorts, where he hired bright and capable people to churn out new inventions almost weekly. Light bulbs, phonograph record players, even motion picture cameras all came out of Edison's shop. We can't, and we shouldn't give him sole credit. Much of the work was done by other people, and Edison got the lion's share of glory. But it's easy to see how the systems he put in place and the company he founded made huge advancements in science and technology. It probably wouldn't have happened quite like it did if he hadn't rescued that little boy in that train station. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. 
With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. This month's You Have 30 Seconds comes from Mythili in Vancouver, Canada. Mythili, I really, really enjoyed this. In 1864, a man from Lynchburg, Virginia published the Beale Papers, which claimed that 8,011 pounds of gold and silver, along with jewels equal to $13,000, were buried somewhere in the country of Bedford by a Thomas Jefferson Beale. The key to opening this treasure trove was entrusted to Robert Morris and encrypted in three pages full of many numbers. It was a book cipher, and the only clue we have is in the Beale Papers, which gives us information about what was buried. It was decrypted using the Declaration of Independence. Absolutely fascinating. I love it. It's kind of like national treasure. And actually, it turns out I was I kind of drove through one of the suspected areas where it may be hidden uh, this summer. I wish I would have known. I would have gone looking for it. I can't wait to learn more. Thank you so much, my Thiele. And if anyone out there has a you have 30 seconds, all you got to do is uh, make a recording in 30 seconds or less and send it our way. Instructions are on the website. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. Well, gee whiz, it seems like it's time for a quiz. Question number one. What famous British writer was in a train crash in 1865? After a section of track was removed from the rail line, and no one really told anybody about it, a train carrying Charles Dickens crashed. The rider was in a car which balanced very precariously on the edge of a viaduct, and despite this, and after exiting safely, he went back into the teetering car to get his most recent unfinished manuscript. Yikes. Question number two. Where is the busiest train station in the world? Shinjuku Station in Japan is the busiest train station in the world. And on average, they have over 3 million passengers travel through it every single day, which is a lot of people. Question number three. 
1830, the first locomotive in America, a train called Tom Thumb, lost a race to what? The locomotive was racing with a horse. And while the train could move easily at around 18 miles per hour, something on the engine broke in the middle of the race. So like the tortoise beating the hare, this horse-drawn train finished first by staying slow and steady. The names Lincoln and Booth will forever be linked. If you're unaware or you need a refresher, the most fateful crossing of paths between these two families came on April 14, 1865. It was only five days after General Robert E. Lee had surrendered to Union General Ulysses S. Grant, bringing an end to the Civil War, the war which had lasted all of Lincoln's presidency. The over four-year-long war had taken a lot out of Americans, and none more so than the Lincolns, which is probably why Abraham and his wife Mary decided to take in a play at Ford's Theater. They had invited Ulysses S. Grant, the general who had just won the war, and his wife Julia, but the Grants were last-minute cancellations. The Lincolns also invited their son, Robert Lincoln, but he had been traveling back home from the war front and was tired. So another pair of friends joined instead. John Wilkes Booth was an actor who sided with the defeated Confederate South, who was fumingly angry at Lincoln, and who was part of a group which had been plotting against the president. Booth knew the play they were watching. It was called Our American Cousin. He knew it so well that he memorized exactly when an actor would say the funniest, biggest laugh-getting line of the night, and when the audience laughed at it, he planned to assassinate Abraham Lincoln. His evening went according to plan. Abraham Lincoln's did not. The words, you sockdologizing old man trap, were probably not the very last words that Lincoln wished to hear, but that's how it played out. A few hours later, in a room across the street, Lincoln's friend, Edwin Stanton, uttered much more dignified and famous words to a room filled with shock and grief. Now he belongs to the ages, he said. Or actually, he might have said, now he belongs to the angels. No one is quite sure. But the point is the same. Lincoln had died, killed by John Wilkes Booth. Among the grieving was his 22-year-old son, Robert Lincoln. More on him later. The Booth family was a famous family in 19th century America. Junius Brutus Booth had been born in England and by his 20s had traveled to America and built a name as a great Shakespearean actor. That notoriety would be overshadowed eventually by his children. First, Edwin, for being a better actor than his father, and then by John Wilkes, who, despite being an actor, would be remembered more for other things. Edwin's life on the road began when his mother sent him out to keep an eye on his touring father, whose alcoholism created terrible problems for his family and acting career. Along the way, Edwin got his first taste of the stage. He was infatuated, and as it turns out, he had a natural talent. His first role came in 1849 alongside his father in Richard III. He'd actually play the lead role just a year later one night when his temperamental father refused to go out on stage. Before long, Edwin was performing Shakespeare for gold miners out west, earning accolades back east and soliloquizing everywhere in between. 
He even performed on tours of Australia and Hawaii. Throughout the 1850s, Edwin became a star, perhaps peaking in the 1860s as the most famous actor in America. But he wasn't the only acting brother. In 1864, he and his brothers John Wilkes and Junius Jr. starred in a production of Julius Caesar. That successful and much-heralded show was a benefit, and the proceeds of which paid for a statue of William Shakespeare, which still stands today in New York City's Central Park. Perhaps more than anything, however, Edwin is remembered for his astounding run, 100 consecutive nights of Hamlet. Between November of 1864 and March of 1865, Edwin took to the stage each and every night. 100 times something was rotten in Denmark. 100 ghost father visits. 100 to be or not to bees. It was a run that would go untouched until 1922 when someone else literally one-upped him and did it all 101 times before hanging up the crown. All of this is to say that Edwin Booth was a celebrity, one of, if not the most famous actor in America, all at a time before television and radio. He had to get famous by being really, really good and by performing constantly. And it worked. Now, as for Robert Lincoln, he also had a challenging relationship with his father. As the eldest child, he was around while Abraham was still trying to make a name for himself. He once remarked that for most of his childhood, his father was either on the road or getting ready to go out on the road. Sometimes they felt like strangers. When the family moved to the White House in 1861, they would see a bit more of each other, at least when Robert wasn't in school and when his father wasn't distracted by the United States of America literally falling apart. The actual date is murky, but sometime around 1863 or 1864, Robert was on break from school. Despite wanting to enlist in the Union Army, he was studying to be a lawyer at Harvard. So a break was probably well-deserved, and he was heading back to the White House to visit his mother and father. One leg of his journey took him to the train station in Jersey City, New Jersey, where he needed to board a train bound for Washington, D.C. As luck, and I really do mean luck, as luck would have it, none other than Edwin Booth was also passing through that very same train station. Stranger still, Booth happened to be traveling with his friend, John T. Ford, who owned a theater in Washington, D.C. What was the name of the theater, you might ask? Oh, it was Ford's Theater. Have you heard of it? Anyway, this was a busy day at the train station, and as Lincoln was waiting to board his homebound vehicle, a horde of people were jockeying for position on the platform next to the tracks. Before he could prevent it, the young man's body was pinned up against one of the train cars. With his feet still on the platform, he kept his balance until the train car started to move. It moved slowly at first, but it was enough to twist his body, lose his footing, and cause him to fall down between the platform and the moving train. It was a terribly dangerous predicament, and Lincoln knew it, but the height of the platform and the panic of the moment and the crowd above him made it difficult to scramble back up. Instinctively, a hand reached down and grabbed him by the collar, pulling mightily to bring the young man back up to safety on the platform. Out of harm's way, Robert Lincoln turned to thank the man who had just saved his life. And when he focused on the man's face, he knew him immediately. It was Edwin Booth, 
whose fame as a Shakespearean actor preceded him. Robert later recalled that he thanked him by name before the travelers went on their separate ways, Robert to Washington and Edwin to Richmond. Edwin thought little of it until he got a few letters, one supposedly from Ulysses S. Grant, congratulating him on saving the life of Lincoln's oldest son. Booth later said that Grant offered to be of service if there was ever anything he could do to help. At the time, it was probably just more of a delight knowing that he had saved Robert's life. Edwin Booth was a unionist. He voted twice for Lincoln and disagreed with his brother John's beliefs to the point of quarreling. A year or so passed. Then, just a month after closing his 100-night marathon run of Hamlet, everything changed. On the fateful night of April 14, 1865, in Ford's Theater, Robert Lincoln lost his father, Mary lost her husband, America lost its president, and Edwin Booth lost the glory of the family name. The Booth name had been synonymous with Shakespeare and the stage for two generations in America, but no longer. Edwin struggled for years with what his brother had done, and for the remainder of his life and beyond, his brother's despicable action would be the prevailing memory of the Booth name. One solace he could find for himself was recalling the moment in a train station when his quick action saved the life of the president's son. But he was haunted nearly everywhere he went. America mourned the president, but also worked to honor and remember Lincoln in hundreds of different ways. To raise funds for a sculpture in Chicago, many people purchased copies of a cast of Lincoln's own hands. The money would be used to help pay the artist to create the sculpture, and those copies of the hands were scattered all over the country. It was a version of crowdfunding. Those casts were originally made by Leonard Volk, whose intriguing story was told way back on episode 12 of The Past and the Curious. Go check it out. As Sarah Vowell recounts in her book, Assassination Vacation, Edwin Booth found himself at a swanky party many years later when he noticed a life-size pair of bronze hands on a shelf. He picked them up, curiously turned them over, and asked what they were. Someone who hopefully knew how to handle the unique situation delicately informed him that they were <clears throat> a cast of Abraham Lincoln's hands. Booth silently put them back on the shelf and said nothing else. Perhaps he thought about Robert Lincoln in the train station. Well, I hope you enjoyed episode 62. Thank you so much for listening. If you do enjoy, there are lots of ways that you can support the show. The best way that you can support the show is take that mouth of yours and use it to tell somebody else about it. Or you can use your fingers if you want to send an email or something like that. But yes, you are the best way for people to find out about it. You can also leave us reviews on your favorite platform, if that's Apple Podcasts or if that's Spotify or if that's um, Good Pods, which is a cool one that we've been into lately. Every little bit helps. So just make sure you smash that subscribe button. And uh, I'm going to try to get some like video stuff going on YouTube. Um, so, you know, if you're into that, you can uh, smash that subscribe button too. So, uh, speaking of people that I need to thank, it's Patreon time, and I also have a song for someone named Xavier. Uh, so, let's get started. All of these people have chosen to financially support the show, and it means the world. Thank you so much. So, 
Eloise and Teddy, hello to you. Thank you, Eloise and Teddy. I hope you're well out there. Also, William and Dane Hansen out in Utah. Howdy out there. I'm glad you all are listening as well. I've never been to Utah. I'd like to come someday. Um, also, Don in Vermont. I'm not sure if I should be thanking you or not. I'm thanking you now. If I should be thanking someone else, Don, you just tell me who, okay? And last but not least, Xavier, I have a silly song that I wrote for you, and I am very grateful for your support that makes twice this year. I really, really, really appreciate it. I'm glad the show means so much to you. I'm glad the show means so much to everybody. So um, if you're not Xavier, just pretend you are for a minute and enjoy the silly song I wrote for him and you, if you're pretending to be Xavier. Hey, Xavier, do me a favor. Tell me what's your favorite flavor of wafer to savor. Hey, Xavier, is your neighbor a reenactor of Stephen Decatur or maybe your town's mayor? Later, skater, alligator, let's go eat some mashed potatoes. Uh-huh. Yep, I. it was Thanksgiving. I had mashed potatoes on my mind. I hope you like mashed potatoes, buddy. Thank you to everyone out there. My name is Mick Sullivan. This has been The Past and the Curious. There is another underwear episode just around the corner. So be patient and um, be good and nice and all of that stuff. The things that we should all be doing. Talk to you next month. 